Good morning, Trinity. Uh, this morning's reading is from Mark chapter 9, and uh, that's what I'll be preaching from, and I'm going to read it for us first. It's the story of the, the account of the transfiguration, <clears throat> and then um, I'm going to pray for us. So let's, let's get into Mark's gospel again. After six days, Jesus took Peter and James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before, the, before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer, uh, suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as, as it is written about him. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder, and ran to greet him. What are you arguing about with them? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought my son who is possessed by a spirit and has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, This kind can come out only by prayer. They, just so far. <clears throat> okay, let's, um, let's ask for God's help as we, uh, as we come to think a little bit more about that great passage. Father, we thank you for this account, which is 
utterly unique, unlike anything in ancient literature. And we, um, we pray that you would give us not just eyes uh, to see it with our, uh, in our, the eyes in our heads, but Father, would you help us to, um, to have eyes, the eyes of our hearts opened? Would we see and understand more of the great work that your Son came into the world to do? And please would that strike our own hearts. Please would you, um, would it make such an impact on us this morning? Would your spirit work in us, growing our picture and our vision of who Jesus is and um, giving us greater confidence and assurance in what you have planned for us. And I pray this in his name. Amen. Now, some of us sitting here this morning uh, will have thought to ourselves, perhaps recently, that the Christian life feels harder than it should. Maybe that's you as you sit there. Maybe you have gone through a patch recently, or maybe your whole Christian experience has felt um, like one long patch of struggle. Maybe you've wondered to yourself if, you, if you're doing it right. Perhaps you're wondering if you're a Christian at all. And maybe you've heard uh, what some other churches teach um, around and about. Here's an excerpt from one of them. This is a Joel Osteen sermon. He says, let me assure you, God didn't create you to be average. He didn't create you to barely get by, to have all kinds of things holding you back. You've got to get the, vis the right vision. God created you to be totally free, to have peace in your mind, to walk in divine health, to have good relationships, to have plenty, to pay your bills. God created us as victors, not victims. Fight the good fight of faith. Know who you are, the seed of Abraham. You have rights and privileges. One of those privileges is total victory, preached Joel Osteen. And I hope you know that Austin is a preacher of the prosperity gospel, a message uh, which boasts that no Christian should struggle or suffer. It's just not God's plan for you and your life. Uh, and if it is something that's happening, well, then something terrible has gone wrong. It is a message that has gripped churches all over the world. African churches are certainly no exception. The director of a Christian training course in London um, was told by one of his African students that in his country, the prosperity gospel is so widespread that some churches have rewritten the marriage vows. Uh, instead of promising faithfulness for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, now they promise to remain true for better, for best, for richer, for richest. They argue that um, if I'm a Christian, how can it be possible uh, to ever be worse or to be poorer. Maybe that sounds a little bit over the top to you, but I wonder if there have been times when you've asked yourself, or perhaps you've asked God, if this much difficulty that you're going through right now, if that's normal, if that's right. You know, should I be struggling this much, God? Why is there so little relief from it all? Um, why is there so little ease? Why is there so little glory in my Christian walk? Am I doing it all wrong? Well, our passage that I've just read uh, for us is going to help us to see that hardship and suffering in the Christian life is not the exception to the rule, 
No, and it's certainly not a glitch in God's plan for you and me. No, it is in fact to be expected. The Bible lays out a kind of trajectory to the Christian life. Uh, it says, look, this is where we're headed. This is um, the unimaginable, glorious end that we're getting to. But before we get there, indeed, in order to get there, there will be struggle. There will be suffering on the way. It is a trajectory that, um, that we are on because we follow behind a king who blazed exactly that trail in front of us. And this is a real point of contention. In, in the passage last week, uh, uh, remember it caused a real standoff between Peter and Jesus. Jesus had just told his disciples that he, God's king, was about to suffer and be rejected. And Peter took him aside and rebuked him. Who would have thought that such a thing would happen? But it just highlights for us how unready Peter was for this pattern of life. And perhaps you are too. Unready for this pattern of life for himself, but perhaps more so even for God's king. Surely, suffering and the humiliation that goes with it would not be a part of God's king's trajectory. But that is what Jesus had just said in chapter 8. And then a few verses later, he says, and anyone coming after me must follow the same trajectory, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. There will be suffering. But Jesus wonderfully didn't stop there. He went on to point them to the unimaginably glorious end as well. He says those who give up their lives in this way will in fact save them. And they will spend those saved lives with God and his angels and his son in glory. So suffering first and then glory after. It's a trajectory or a pattern that is recognizable in an advert that was reportedly placed in a London newspaper um, by the great explorer Ernest Shackleton. He was making a bid to be the first explorer to reach the South Pole, but he knew that it would be a grueling journey, and he knew that it might not, it might not succeed. And so the advert that he put in the paper went like this. Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in the event of success. Glory, if it was to come at all, would only happen after serious hardship for that explorer's party. In the case of those who followed Jesus, we know it's, it's a guarantee. And the reason we know it's guaranteed is because uh, of passages like this one. We see the trajectory that ends in glory. But it is one that, the other guarantee we know is that it goes through suffering. That is the road we walk to get to glory. And we see it in Jesus. We see it in his, uh, in the path that he walked. And then we see it beginning in his followers in this passage. And uh, it all starts in a, in a pretty glorious way. Um, in verses 1 to 8, we see the Son of God uh, giving us a glimpse of future glory. Mark reports this extraordinary scene for us, right? Jesus and three of his disciples go up the mountain, and there we're told 
he was transfigured before him. The word that Mark uses for transfigured is the one that we get metamorphosis from. Jesus undergoes an astonishing change. It is a, um, it is a physical change, an outward change before the eyes of the disciples. In Luke's account, he likens Jesus' clothing to the flash of a lightning. But Mark would have done well in the marketing department of Unilever. He says in verse 3, his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anything in the world, than anyone in the world could bleach them. It's an extraordinary, completely unique scene. And yet some of the ingredients that make up this scene uh, were present in another scene um, long before it, way back in Exodus 24, when God is making himself known to his, the people of Israel. Uh, listen to this. He calls Moses up on a mountain. He, a cloud then settles on top of that mountain. Moses waits six days, like in verse 2, six days before entering the cloud. And then God speaks to Moses from within the cloud, revealing himself to his people. And now here he is doing it again, going through many of the same steps. And amazingly, Moses is there, as well as Elijah. Why? Well, presumably because those are the two great prophets of the Old Testament who pointed ahead of them to an even greater prophet. So these important figures are here now to show that the most important figure has come to take center stage. Jesus is not one in a string of prophets. No, he is the final and the greatest prophet of all, which is why in verse 8, the other two disappear, and Jesus is left standing there on his own with the disciples. But it's in verse 7 when God starts to speak that we really understand how, how big this moment is. Mark says, Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Incredible, isn't it? Just like Exodus 24, God is making himself known to his people. And the thing that he wants them to know on this mountainside is that Jesus is his son, his long-awaited, appointed king. And he's a breathtakingly glorious king. It is a scene that helps us to understand the comment that Jesus makes back in verse 1. We didn't read verse 1. It, it fits a little bit more with the previous um, conversation that Jesus is having. But as he wraps that conversation up, his, uh, he says to his disciples, you know that conversation about denying himself, denying yourself, taking up your cross and following him. As he wraps up that conversation about what it looks like to be a disciple, he says in verse 1, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Which is kind of a puzzling statement to make until you reach verse 2. Because the next thing that Jesus does is to take Peter, James, and John up a mountain and show them his glorious splendor. They get a sneak preview here of the triumphant king in the glory that he will have forever. Now, at the risk of trivializing this great moment, I thought it, it's a little bit like watching uh, the World Cup Rugby 2019 as a South African supporter. If you're not a fan, please forgive me. But imagine watching that opening game, the Springboks against the All Blacks, a game that we actually lost. 
Imagine watching that game and the final whistle blows and you all sort of slump in your seats and then suddenly we get a flash, um, a flash forward that, uh, that comes across our screen and it is a glimpse of the award ceremony at the end. And there you see all the Springboks laden with golden medals and they're holding up the Webb Ellis Trophy. Imagine that that's, that's sort of that screen, flash, that picture flashes across your screen just as you've been watching that defeat to the All Blacks. What a moment. Uh, we'd watch the rest of the tournament very differently, wouldn't we? With, with uplifted hearts, knowing that, that actually something great is coming. And what a moment for these disciples on this mountain, given a sneak preview of God's triumphant King. It's a moment designed to lift their hearts and to help them to know that whatever the immediate future brings, in the long run, they are on the side of glorious victory. It's a moment that could not be better timed for them because their worlds have just been turned upside down, haven't they? By a king who has said that he's about to suffer and die. You know, perhaps those disciples were still puzzling that out as they walked the foothills of this mountain. And it is a moment that is designed for you and me too. Living long after Jesus has come and gone, but still following him through the ups and downs, the difficulties and disappointments of life, this transfiguration is a sneak preview for you and me. Um, it shows us who is on the winner's podium on the history in, in, in the history of the world. It shows us who is triumphantly on the throne and will be forever. It is our good and loving King. It is an assurance to us that whatever we may be going through, whatever it is that you've just been through over the last week or perhaps what you've been through over the last few decades, it won't last. It may be uh, exclusion from your people, from, from the people you know and love. It may be a, a struggle against a particular sin. It may be um, a physical ailment that you just can't get over. It may be the hurt or the grief or the disappointment that you just can't seem to shake. Well, Jesus wants us to know that it, all of that is just for a season. It may feel, right now, it may feel too long to bear, but in a few hundred thousand years' time, your struggles will prove to have been like a wink of the eye. That quick. And an eternity of relief and peace and glory will stretch out before you. It is a moment in history designed to get you looking forward to the day when Jesus returns in that very same splendor. I wonder if that is your instinct when trouble comes your way. Do you just grit your teeth when it happens? I'm quite sure you pray when trouble comes your way. But do you remember this sneak preview of what is certainly coming your way? In fact, of what is really real and who is really on the throne. In addition to what the disciples saw, they also heard something. They get a sort of divine soundbite, don't they? This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. 
which is uh, what they've been struggling to do in the last in the last chapter because he had been saying things that they didn't want to hear god's king would suffer and die and there will have been and there will be many times if we're honest that we hear things from jesus that that we don't like things that jar with society or culture or just our our way of thinking things that rock our world it's that divine soundbite that we'll need to keep remembering as well jesus is god's triumphant king now and forever soon he will return in unmatchable glory and power until then we must follow him even though it will mean enduring hardship and suffering now it's hardship and suffering that we hear more about as jesus and his disciples come off the mountain in this next conversation we hear the son of man teaching that before glory he must suffer and in verses 9 to 13 they really do come down from their uh, from their high in more ways than one don't they they've just witnessed a once in a world history spectacle but then jesus gives them orders not to tell anyone what they've seen until the son of man has risen from the dead oh, you know keeping that secret must have been hard uh, but then in verse 11 they have a different question and they asked him why do the teachers of the law say that elijah must come first you can understand the question they've just seen a display of power and splendor god's king has shown himself he's come so why do the religious teachers say that elijah must come back before that presumably the teachers got that idea from the book of malachi in chapter 4 which says exactly that see i will send the prophet elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the lord comes now we have a bit of an advantage over the disciples here because well, we've got the gospels that they went on to write once they had the bigger picture so we know that the elijah spoken of here is is not the uh, the exact physical man but one like elijah he would come to carry on the the job that elijah started he would preach elijah's message of repentance and restoration he would even dress like elijah and that one was john the baptist uh, who mark starts his gospel with who called on people to repent and be restored to god and so jesus can say yes G elijah is does come first in fact he's come already but in the middle of this conversation jesus changes the subject a bit halfway through verse 12 take a look he says why then is it written that the son of man must suffer much and be rejected and again i think we can understand if elijah slash john the baptist's job was to get everyone repenting and restored for the return of god's king then why all this talk of the king still suffering the answer i think comes in jesus's own words here firstly because it is written it has been foretold in the old testament in places like isaiah chapter 53 god's servant we're told will suffer it's part of his role and secondly there's a biblical pattern of it in verse 13 jesus speaks about john the baptist's suffering doesn't he he says they have done to him everything they've wished and we only have to go back just a few pages to see how john the baptist was opposed all the way to his brutal and unjust execution 
And if we went even further back, all the way back to the original Elijah, we would see that very same pattern of opposition and suffering. See, this is the way it has been for God's faithful people pretty much from the beginning. And the startling thing is that it won't just be for the forerunners of God's great king, it will be for him too. Suffering is the road he came to walk, which makes him just the most extraordinarily unique king, doesn't it? Unlike all the others. I read uh, that the queen will be driven to the Duke of Edinburgh's funeral in what is known as the State Bentley. Bulletproof and airtight, the rear door has been reconfigured for her so that she can stand up straight before leaving the, the vehicle, looking dignified on her royal visits. Now, I really admire the Queen for things that she has said and done. But the striking thing about God's King, the Son of Man, is that he did not come to be waited on hand and foot. He came to suffer and die. And last week we started to hear why that is. It is our sin that has put him on that trajectory. Our sin, which is the debt that we could not pay back to God, but which God's Son could pay on our behalf by taking it on himself at the cross of Calvary. What a king we have. To have given up his place in glory and to have come to walk the road of suffering and rejection on our behalf. That sacrifice should draw out in us just endless thanks and praise, shouldn't it? But it also blazes a trail for us, a trail that we will follow as we follow the Lord Jesus. Suffering will be ours, as Peter writes, in all kinds of trials. It will come as we give ourselves to those words of Jesus. Deny yourselves, take up your cross, and follow me. That's a a counter-instinctive trajectory for us. Um, and it will only be done with great difficulty. Difficulty within ourselves as we fight the temptation to put ourselves first, to give in to selfishness and sin, and difficulty with others as our life rubs them up the wrong way from time to time. No doubt that sounds pretty miserable uh, to you. But here are two things to keep in mind as we go down this road. Firstly, our suffering is not arbitrary and meaningless. It is a part of God's careful and genius plan to get us to glory. The book of Romans says about suffering that it produces endurance in us, which produces character in us, which produces hope, and all of, all of which leads us finally to glory. Our suffering always has a good reason. Whatever you're going through, it has a good reason, even when we don't know what it is. And then secondly, suffering now, glory later, doesn't mean that there is zero joy now. It's not that the Christian life is all bad until it's all good suddenly. No, real, deep joy is found in this meaningful, God-honoring life, and it is a joy that comes from knowing personally the God who loves you, the God who made you, who suffered for you, and who has promised never to leave you in your own struggles and hardship. 
The other thing that is true, of course, um, about suffering is that it shouts to us to depend on the king who we are following. And that is what we see in this last section of our passage this morning. Jesus calls us to trust him on the suffering to glory road. Well, in verses 9 to 13, they were coming down off their high. In verse 14, they're back to earth with a bump, aren't they? There's a commotion. Mark says, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. And it turns out to be the most horrific situation. A boy, a little boy, is possessed by an evil spirit, and that demon has treated his little host so brutally and horrifically. It's robbed him of his speech. It has thrown him down onto the ground. As we'll hear later, it has actually thrown him into water and into fire in an effort to kill him. Can you imagine the emotional strain that that must have put on the whole family for years and years. And you can imagine this father's raised hopes as he comes looking for Jesus. But those hopes are dashed again as Jesus isn't there and his disciples can't seem to get rid of this demon. But just then Jesus arrives and as we know from chapter 3, no spiritual strong man can match the power of this stronger man. And Jesus makes short work of this demon uh, with some powerful words. Now we have seen demons cast out uh, uh, by Jesus before, and we know that he has the power to do it. So the question is, why are we getting this account? You know, why are we reading this here? And as always, the context is going to be very important. I, I wonder if you notice firstly the unusual conversation that happens after the boy is restored. Halfway through verse 26, Mark says, the boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and stood up, and he stood up. And the more literal translation says, he arose. While this language of death and of being raised up, could it be that Mark is wanting to underline the kind of saving power that Jesus has at his disposal. That is triumphant resurrection power. Could it be that he wants to assure his disciples, disciples from every age, that even though he calls each one of us to follow him, Jesus calls each one of us to follow him down a road of suffering and rejection, weakness and death, it will not end that way. No, it will end with Jesus powerfully lifting each one of us up to our feet, raising each one of us to new, indestructible life. D.L. Moody was an American preacher. He lived a while ago. Uh, when he was getting on in years, he wrote this. He said, one of these days you will read in the newspaper that I'm dead. Don't believe a word of it. I'll be more alive than ever before. Now, he could write those words because of what Jesus had showed him in places like this, showed him his saving resurrection power that points to a glorious future reality. The other reason for including this miracle here, I think, has to do with all the talk of belief that we get. Perhaps you noticed how often belief 
comes up here, sometimes negatively, like in verse 19, where Jesus seems to despair, O unbelieving generation, and sometimes positively, like in, in verse 23, everything is possible for one who believes. The challenge to us who are following Jesus down this road of, of struggle and suffering is to keep putting our trust in the one place, the one person who can solve our problem, who can alleviate our pain, who can get us all the way down the road to glory. Belief in the Bible isn't, isn't an intellectual agreement. It is casting your whole self onto the only person who can save you. When we do that, says Jesus, impossibly difficult situations will be turned around. But you and I both know that rock-solid, enduring faith is just impossible, isn't it? It's not like a software package that we sort of neatly install and there it is, ready to go. No, we struggle, don't we, to keep trusting Jesus day in and day out. We fail because we are weak. Which is why the Father's words in this little story are so encouraging, aren't they? Do you hear yourself in, the, in his words as he says to Jesus, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. These words uh, in, in, in the story, I think, are a contrast to the unbelieving generation. Here is a man whose faith is not perfect. It's weak and he knows it. But even so, it is being directed to the right person. And that is the, the point, isn't it, of biblical faith. It does not require a powerful, unfaltering display. Incidentally, that is what prosperity preachers call for. But true biblical faith often looks weak and unimpressive. The difference is, it is directed to the right place, to the right person. And when that happens, even faith the size of a mustard seed will work. Let me illustrate for you. Imagine you are being washed down a river. Imagine you are, you are at death's door. You're about to sink beneath the water. There's hardly any life left in you. But as you go, you, see, you suddenly see two options to be saved, to be rescued. On the one side is a branch hanging low over the water. But you will still need to lift your arm onto that branch. You'll still need to cling onto it. You'll still need to pull yourself up and drag yourself along it to the bank. And you just don't have it in you. But dangling down over the middle of the river is the arm of a rescuer. And of course, that arm is attached to the rest of the rescuer. And the rescuer is attached by a, by a heavy-duty cable to a helicopter that is hovering above you. All you have to do is just raise that arm in the right direction and he will perform the whole rescue. The Bible says that even our faith is a gift from God. And this passage tells us that our faith does not need to be perfect or powerful. It just needs to be aimed in the right direction. Perhaps this morning you feel like that half-drowned person being washed down the river. Jesus says to you, everything is possible for the one who believes. Trust in him this morning, because he has shown himself to be God's triumphant, eternal, victorious king. Won't you trust in him this morning?
because he has shown you that suffering and hardship are not a glitch in God's plan. They are how God is getting you to glory. Won't you trust in him this morning, even though your faith is weak and faltering? Rest assured that if it's in Jesus, it is in the right place. Trust in him in the darkest moments. Don't turn away from him. But know that he knows what suffering is all about. He has gone ahead of you on the road of suffering because he loves you and he has suffered for you. And he looks forward to sharing his glory with you. I'm going to pray for us and, um, and ask God to really help us to keep trusting with that imperfect faith directed in the perfect, powerful person. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you don't call us to, um, to raise up some impressive, unfaltering, powerful faith in us. You call us to put our trust, even if it's as small as a mustard seed, in your Son. And we thank you that you have given us a glimpse of the end you've given it you've shown us where the victory lies you've shown us who is triumphantly on the throne and you call us to keep trusting in him even as we go through difficulties and struggles and so father i pray that you would help each one of us if we're going through something difficult now or if there's something in the near future that we will go through father please would you help us to keep our eyes set on jesus and to keep trusting in him please would you strengthen our faith and help us never to take our eyes off your Son, who saves us for a glorious eternity. And we pray this in his name. Amen.